Brothers and sisters, you already know that we live in a godless society. We live in a secular society, in fact. Now, we understand that not everyone in the country of Canada is a Christian, and there are people in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our universities that hold to very different views than we do. And so one might argue that because we live in a diverse culture, secularism is necessary. Secularism, which allows for all different views, all different religions, all different worldviews to coexist, we might argue, well, that's kind of necessary uh, in order to coexist. But we also need to understand that secularism is not the spiritually neutral middle ground. Secularism is, in fact, and we need to understand this as the people of God, the antithesis to Christianity, the opposite of everything Christian. Think about this. Secularism explains human origins, explains human nature, explains human love, explains human self-worth with no reference to God, who actually defines all of these things. And so as if you are a secularist and you are studying human nature, you're studying uh, the nature of human love, you're discussing human origins, you will arrive at a very, very different conclusion than biblical Christians will. And this will affect how you view yourself, how you live your life, how you interact with other people. Behind the scenes, by the way, God will be robbed of glory. And you will be robbed of the blessing that God wants to give you if you truly understood him as your creator and listened to his holy word. Now, here's the rub. Most people in Christian churches today, and I know there's some exceptions to this, but most people in Christian churches today, especially in our country, were educated in secular schools for many, many, many years. Or we have come out of secularism as our worldview and our lifestyle into saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Or we work in secular jobs, or we expose ourselves regularly to secular entertainment or secular media. And because of this, I would like to bring a word from the Lord, warning the people of God that one of the things I've noticed, and of course, I'm not the only one to notice this, many others have as well. One of the things that I have noticed is that Christianity has largely been secularized as well. And so when you're in the foyer after a church service or you're on the phone talking to someone who's a Christian or you're in a counseling session and you're trying to help a believer unpack some of their challenges and struggles and find solutions, what we see more often than not is that Christian people say, well, we love Jesus and the word of God is authoritative, but their mindset, their their view of life, their view of love, of relationships, of marriage, of politics, of the economy, of science, and of self is actually more reflective of a secular mindset than it is of a biblical mindset. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to be tackling some of these issues. And I'm starting a new sermon series today called Desecularizing Christianity. And the subtitle to this series is Embracing a Sacred Worldview. So we're going to be dealing with different issues. This week, we're going to be looking at a sacred view, a biblical view of human nature. And we're going to be understanding that if we have a secular view of human nature, which is not spiritually neutral, it can be very destructive. Instead of thinking secularly, we must find a way to think biblically while at the same time functioning in a secular world. And thank God the Bible helps us to do that. The eternal word of God helps to shape how we think and out of that, how we feel, how we react, how we interact, how we prioritize life. The Bible helps us to think clearly, biblically about who we are and how we are to function. Just by way of a little bit of uh, information about secularism, just to kind of get us going here before we uh, find our way into the scriptures, uh, let me just say this, that secularism is essentially a worldview that draws its conclusions about a variety of subjects, that draws its conclusions about a variety of subjects 
from evidence. You might say, well, that, that sounds pretty good. Why would we not want to explore the evidence? But what secularism does is it says evidence is only evidence if it can be tested and approved by human beings, by human experience. So as I interact with the world and I see certain things, I hear certain things, arguments are presented to me, facts are presented to me, I accept them. I don't need God to tell me what's true or false. I don't need input from a transcendent being. I don't need the divine other to tell me who I am. I can discover all that through the scientific method, through the study of sociology, of psychology, of humanistic economics, and so forth and so on. And therefore, secularism is actually humanism. Humanism teaches that we are the determiners of what is true and what isn't true. So think of a lightning rod on a roof. The lightning comes down, it strikes the rod, the, the, the power, the energy goes into the rod. It harnesses the energy momentarily in that rod. You don't see the lightning, but the the electricity, the power is in that rod, and then it goes down to the earth. In, in a similar way, the, the humanist says, you know, we are the lightning rods of truth. We possess the power. We possess the energy. It resides in us. We don't need God or someone outside of human experience to tell us what's right or wrong. If you want to know what's true, if you want to know where the power is, if you want to know where the authority is, you can find it in and among humanity. There's no being beyond us. There's no sacred text to guide us. There's no special revelation to refine us or define us. We can figure it all out. If we find our way into the Bible, what we discover is that the Bible has a very different understanding of human nature than secularism does. And so this is the topic that I want to tackle today. Desecularizing Christianity. How do we do that? Well, one of the most foundational subjects to address is who am I? Who are we? Do you understand who you are? I'm not talking about your name, your birthday, your occupation. But do you understand what it means to actually be a human being? You might say, oh yeah, I understand. I took sociology classes and psychology classes and I studied religion at school. Or I, I, I used to you know, worship at the local temple or whatnot. Or I've just kind of arrived at my own conclusions. These are inadequate means and methods of understanding who you are. You will only understand who you are if you listen to what God says about who you are. And we're going to look today at James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. And there we're going to understand better what it means to be a human being. Now, when it comes to a secular definition of human nature, secularism essentially delivers this message. Like, what's a human being? What does it mean to be human? And secularism will tell you things like, well, you're powerful. And you're essentially good. This is the, the baseline philosophy to secular humanism when it comes to defining human nature. You are basically good. You are powerful. You can accomplish whatever you want. So what are some of the applications of this? Let me just list several. Just, and, and as I'm listing these, Think about the messages you've received, maybe even this past week, as you've watched television, as you've seen commercials, as you've interacted with other people. How about this one? Express yourself. Express yourself. Or the notion, we can fix the world's problems by ourselves. You know, racism has kind of reared its ugly head once again in the last several years in our culture. And human beings actually think, 
that they can fix racism just by human means. Let's create some hashtags. Let's form some movements. Let's protest. Let's talk about it a lot. Let's shame racists into silence. We think we can fix racism apart from God. We believe that we can fix discrimination, sexual abuse, through various human means. Let's start a movement. We'll call it Me Too. That'll fix it all. I mean, after all, human beings are innately good. If we just talk about it enough, if we create enough hashtags, if we get together and have our political movements, if we lobby for it, if we make certain things legal and certain things illegal, it'll, it'll fix the problem. Folks, we're thousands of years into human history. Humans have been around for thousands of years. We haven't fixed it yet. What makes us think that in our generation, we're going to fix all these things just by human means? A couple more illustrations. Throw money at it. If we just fund it more, if we raise more tax dollars and we educate people better, that will fix it. We have this lunatic out in Nova Scotia that recently went around and slaughtered a whole bunch of, whole bunch of people senselessly. You don't hear discussions about human sinfulness ever from the political establishment. The solution is, let's get rid of assault rifles. Now, all of these movements and all of these methods in and of themselves are not necessarily bad. But they're like putting a Band-Aid on an infected wound. It doesn't solve the problem. It might lock the infection in. It might conceal the infection for a period of time. But, but eventually the disease will rear its ugly head again. The bottom line is this. Human beings tend to have a very optimistic view of humanity, and the Bible does not. The Bible has a pessimistic view of humanity apart from the transformative work of Christ. Secularism assumes that people can be fixed by people. Let me say that again. Secularism assumes that people can be fixed by people because people are essentially good. But it always ends in total failure. Every generation has to go back to the drawing board and ask itself, how do we stop the rapists? How do we stop the racism? How do we stop the murders? How do we stop the war? How do we stop the discrimination? And to date, as of May 3rd, 2020, we have not been successful. What does that tell you about secular humanism's view of humanity? It's a lie. And frankly, I don't even need to argue this theologically or philosophically because you know it. You know, as one of my listeners today, as you hear my voice, you know how much of a failure you have been time and time and time again in your own life and measuring up to your own standards. You know that. And you also know when people step into your life and offer to fix it, that they have failed you as well. We've all failed And we've all been failed by other people. Now, this tips us off to the reality that we actually aren't as good as secular humanism tells us we are. So we're going to go to the Bible and let the Bible weigh in on this. And what we're going to learn from the Bible is that while we might think that there is blessing in thinking of ourselves as good, I'm so good. That's If I can just see myself for all of my potential and all of my capacity and all of my goodness, that will allow me to conquer life and that will allow freedom and that will allow me to flourish like a newly blossomed flower in the spring. But it's all a lie. What we're going to learn from the Bible is that there's greater blessing in seeing oneself as forgiven than there is in seeing oneself as good. If we see ourselves as innately good, we're going to be sadly disappointed, and we already have been. But if we see ourselves as forgiven, the precursor to which is to understand we're sinners. And we're actually worse off than we usually think we are. This sets us up for a transformative work from God, which brings blessing like nothing else. The you are good rhetoric 
that we hear in culture is a hopeless lie. But the forgiveness message of the gospel is hope-filled promise for the people of God. James chapter 4, verse 1, opens with a question that I have already, in my own words, posed to us already. And it's something that humans have been thinking about for a long time. So James chapter 4, verse 1 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? The question is a fascinating question. It's essentially asking, like, why are human beings so often moral failures? Why? What does a secularist say in answer to this question? Well, uh, it's, it's culture. We just need to adjust culture. It's your upbringing. Your, your parents made you do it. Uh, it's, the edu- it's the deficiencies of the educational system. If we can just fix our educational system, this will fix this problem. It's religion. The naivety of religion. The pointlessness of religion. The ignorance of religion that's holding society back. How do we fix it? Let's elect different people. Let's shame people into better behavior. Let's educate or re-educate. This is the secularist answer to this question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? You know what the Bible's answer is? Read on. The Bible says, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You know, Jesus, during his earthly ministry in Mark chapter 10, verse 28, tipped us off to the nature of humanity as well. People saw all that he was doing and they said, oh, you're such a good teacher, Jesus. You're so good. Now, Jesus, of course, is hinting here at his true identity. But to kind of test the waters to see whether or not they just thought of him as a really good person or they understood that he was actually God, Jesus said to him, this man that had called him good, he said, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, what Jesus isn't doing there is he's not denying his own deity. He's actually wanting this person to see that Jesus' goodness points to the fact that he was the divine being. But implicit to Jesus' statement is this truth that's repeated again in the Pauline epistles. There is no one who is good. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. We could say this, to be human is to be a failure. And to be human is to fail others. Not fail in a, oh me, oh my, I'm an innocent little guy kind of way. I fail because I am not by nature innately good. This is the lie that secular humanism tells people every day, and it is false, and it is destructive. So in contrast to the optimism of secular humanism, the Bible presents us here with a pessimistic view of human nature apart from divine intervention. You might say, well, this is quite the sermon. This is not what I was expecting this morning. This is a real bummer. This makes me feel really good. Well, bear with me. Because understanding yourself as a broken, inept sinner actually is a precursor to the greatest gift and the greatest news you could ever receive. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say a car breaks down. And maybe you've experienced this. I know I have over the years many times. Your car breaks down and you, you got to push it into the garage. Push it into the garage and... The mechanic looks at it and he says, that part there needs to be replaced. So you ask yourself this question. What is the problem with the car? You might say, well, that's easy. It's broken. Okay, that's true. But that's only one part of the problem with that car. That car is broken, but you know what the other problem is? That car is also breakable. What do I mean by that? 
Not only does that car have a broken part, which can be replaced and the car can be back on the road, but the car is breakable, meaning at some point something else is going to break and then you fix it. And then at some point something else is going to break and you fix it. And after you've fixed it a hundred times and it's just not worth it anymore, you send it to the junkyard. So what's the problem with the car? Well, the immediate problem is that it is broken. But the bigger problem is that it is breakable. Now, we can use this as an illustration of humanity. There are times that we are in the moment broken. We have sinned. We have done something wrong. We've mistreated someone. And secular humanism says, okay, you're broken. We see that. So we're going to fix that problem. And so they run it, and they may be even temporarily successful in fixing that problem. But you still have a broader problem. You're still breakable. And so time and time again, you're going to continue to break down because you are a breakable creature. Humanism says, let's just keep switching out the parts. Let's just keep pushing the car into the garage. Let's just keep you know, adding new tires and new tie rods and changing the spark plugs and swapping out the water pump and changing the battery. And yeah, but the car is still breakable. It just keeps breaking down over and over and over again. And it's because human beings are breakable and not just broken that self-improvement messages, which is essentially secular humanism's response to human brokenness, only fixes the immediate problem. But it doesn't fix the overarching problem. Fortunately, guess what the gospel does? The gospel fixes both our brokenness and our breakability. The gospel not only helps us to respond to relationships differently, to tell the truth, to be ethical, to be moral in the here and now. Not only does it provide us with a livable moral path, a righteous path to be on in the moment, but it also fixes our ultimate problem, which is the fact that we are breakable people. And you say, well, how does that happen? Well, here's how it happens. There's two major sections I'd like to break the rest of this passage down into. There's certain things that we need to come to terms with. And when we come to terms with those things, those actually provide a lot of encouragement for us. So let's start with this. How does the gospel fix both our brokenness and our breakability? Well, it starts with knowing who you are. Knowing who you are dictates how you're going to live. Knowing who you are dictates how you're going to live. So three things that we need to know, three things that we need to come to terms with about human nature. This is a sacred view of humanity, not a secular view of humanity. And the first is found in verse two. We need to come to terms with our sin. The Bible says, you desire and you do not have And so you murder, you covet, and you cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. Now let's just pause there. This passage could go on and on and on and on and on and illustrate countless examples of human sinfulness. We just have a very short list here. And you'll notice that while this isn't an exhaustive list, it kind of it kind of helps us to see the extreme. So we have some extreme displays of human nature in the form of something as dramatic and as disgusting as murder. And then we have some sins that we might consider lesser sins. Sins that don't require as great of a manifestation of human depravity, like covetousness, which leads to fighting and quarreling. Now, why is it that the author provides us with illustrations on either end of the sin spectrum, we could call it? Well, maybe it's because we tend to overlook the lesser sins. We tend to uh, examine ourselves or evaluate ourselves against the backdrop of the world's greatest sinners. Say, man, I could never be as disgusting and repulsive and violent as the guy that gunned down the people in the Nova Scotia shootings. Going back in time, one of the most evil men in human history was arguably Adolf Hitler. Well, I ain't anywhere near like Adolf Hitler. I mean, yeah, I've committed some sins. I, you know, I covet other people's possessions, other people's things, but I'm not a murderer. 
Well, it's true that certain sins are more despicable. It's true that certain sins lead to greater consequences and punishment. The Bible's clear on that. But the reality is that all of us before God are sinners. The word you in the text, you desire, you covet, you quarrel, you know who that refers to? The collective you, all of us. That you includes you. You're one of the yous being talked about in this passage, and so am I. It applies to all of us. So even in the subtle areas, think of, think of our subtle sins for a moment. They can kind of be awkward and shameful, but we see this in ourselves. We see it in other people. You know, you know the subtle comment you kind of put out on, on Facebook or out in a conversation, something that you accomplished, something that you did, and really what you're doing is you're looking for recognition. Now, that's, that's not as extreme as murder, but it still says something about your humanity. You're a broken person. And you're breakable. You'll do it again. That fight to defend the truth that you entered into. You know, you're, you're fighting for truth. You want to stand for truth and righteousness. But you're not gentle. You're not gracious. You're not merciful like the Apostle Peter called us to when we're defending truth. You're not respectful. Again, maybe not as extreme as murder, but sinful Nevertheless, you, you're quarreling over something. This is often true in families. When families are at each other's throat and they're quarreling and they're fighting and, and you, you think back and you're like, why, why is it that we don't get along? And it's some stupid little petty issue. You know, someone forgot to bring the dessert to family Christmas or a birthday card was, you know, arrived late or someone disagreed with someone's choice and some minor issue and it creates this huge family schism. That's the nature of humanity. That's the nature of humanity. You all know what I'm talking about. And I know what I'm talking about. We are, as the scriptures say, sinners. No one is good. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. And in fact, healing will not start until we admit that basic truth, that basic truth. We are not good, but here's the good news. When we are born again, when we become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we may not be innately good, but guess what we discover? We're better than good. Like, how can you be better than good? You can be forgiven. To be forgiven is to be better than good. Because through forgiveness, not only is our brokenness fixed, but our breakability is also fixed. So step one, we need to come to terms with our own sinfulness. Secondly, we need to come to terms with our independent streak. This really is the the message of the second part of verse 2 and verse 3, where the Bible says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you did not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This is a reference, of course, to our dialogue with God through prayer. In prayer, we all know that we express our dependence upon God. That's the essence of prayer. We, we pray to express our dependence upon God. So when we're silent, what are we doing? We're expressing our independence from God. In prayer, we are dependent beings. In prayerlessness, we are independent beings. We're not relying upon God. We're trying to figure things out our own way. And the Bible reminds us here that one of the reasons why we drift from God is because we don't pray. Or we could spin it around the other way and say prayer is an indicator that we've drifted from dependence upon God. And then there are times, the Bible says, when we actually do ask God and God doesn't answer us. We're like, why hasn't he answered me? You know, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. I asked. I sought. I knocked. Why didn't I receive? Well, because sometimes we ask wrongly. 
we ask to spend whatever it is that we want from God on our own passions. We ask, after all, God hears prayers. But maybe we're asking because we want glory for self. We want comfort that God does not want for us in the moment. We want relief without learning the lesson that God has for us. Whatever it might be, we ask wrongly, and so God doesn't answer. This is a demonstration of that independent streak. Even those of us that follow the Lord Jesus Christ, because we're not fully redeemed yet, we're not fully sanctified. Even those of us that follow the Lord Jesus Christ can sometimes slip back into that independent way of you know, managing our way through life. I think one of the greatest blessings, by the way, of the current global crisis that all of humanity is experiencing is just this stark reminder how weak and fragile humanity is. We think we are so tough. We think we can figure it out, manage our way, pay our way, fix our way, re-educate our way, hashtag our way through anything. And this is a huge wake-up call. We can't. We are fragile and we are feeble. And instead of posturing ourselves in a position of independence, what we really need is to live our lives with greater dependence upon our great and gracious God. Third thing we need to know, we need to come to terms with our love for the world. Some of us are just far too in love with the world. And in verse 4, James says to the church, you adulterous people. It's like, well, that's kind of harsh language. Adultery is kind of a disgusting sin. But read on. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Notice that there is an either-or scenario presented to us here. There is no fence to sit on. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality. You're either God's friend or you're God's enemy. And if you're God's friend, you're not friends with the world. You're an enemy of the world. And if you're God's enemy... That means you're friends of the world. So adultery being a serious sin, God uses this word metaphorically, of course, to describe humanity when we are detached from the great lover of our souls, from God himself. Now, being a friend of the world is not to be understood as, well, we're not supposed to be friendly with the world. Of course, we're supposed to be friendly and winsome and kind and caring. And there's going to be times when we have friends, maybe not our best friends, maybe not our closest friends, certainly not our spouses that don't know the Lord. After all, Christian relationships are superior to secular relationships. Why? Because there's a third party in every one of them. God is at the center. And as we draw closer to God, think of a triangle. I've used this in weddings many times. Think of a triangle. You're over on this corner of the triangle, and your friend is on this corner of the triangle. And you're like, what draws us together? It's God at the center. So as you go up the one side of the triangle and draw close to God, and your friend goes up the other side of the triangle, as you draw closer to God, notice the line between you shrinks. You become closer because your life is centered on a third party in that friendship. That's what makes properly conducted Christian relationships superior to any relationship that you can have with a spiritually lost person. So yes, we want to be friendly with the world. But our fellowship is different. Our worldview is different. Our priorities are different. And if we think, you know, in our moments of isolation... Or our moments of loneliness or separation, that the cure to our problem is to seek help from the world, to benefit from the world's systems, ideas, support groups is ultimately going to satisfy us. 
we're going to come up short. God alone, this is more than pastor talk, spiritual drivel, churchianity kind of language. God and God alone, with his Holy Spirit and with his people, brings satisfaction. Do you believe that? Like, really, do you believe it? Like, yeah, I do. No, do you really believe it? Yeah, I believe it. Let me ask again. Do you really believe that? And is it reflected in the way that you are living your life? So we have this bleak expose of human nature. We're sinners. We're naturally independent from God. And we're far too in love with the world. None of that is spiritually neutral. But then we encounter three things that will build us up. So it's like, well, man, I'm feeling pretty bad about myself right now. That's pretty bleak. That's pretty pessimistic. It is. But until you understand this, until you admit this, until you and I come to grips with this, there's no ultimate solution. But now we can talk about the solution. If we understand and receive what God has written for us in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, then be encouraged by what you're going to read in verses 5 and following. So here's the first thing that we learn that builds us up. We can be encouraged that in spite of our sinfulness, God has a desire for us, to be in relationship with us. In verse 5, the Bible says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose... That the scriptures, scripture says, he that is God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Now, normally, when we think of human emotions, we have positive human emotions, we have negative human emotions, and then there's some stuff in the middle that's just kind of contingent upon the circumstances. If we think of the word jealousy, normally that's an uncomfortable word, that's an awkward word. Like, I wouldn't want to be thought of as a jealous guy. It's like, that's kind of immature. It's kind of weak. It's kind of feeble. It's, it's generally a negative word, right? I think we'd all agree with that. Now, why is it then that God permits himself to be described as one who is jealous for relationship with us? Have you ever thought about that? God permits himself to be called a, a jealous God. It's a little awkward. It's like, eh, you're jealous for us? Like, does that mean God's kind of like weak and wimpy and it's got like a low self-esteem and is kind of moping around hoping for our attention? No, 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 no. God is described as a jealous God. God permits us to think of him in this way, to communicate his self-giving desire and affection for us. God's not just like, yeah, if you want to love me, go for it. If you're not, it doesn't bother me at all. It's not that kind of a God. He's not a God that is unaffected by our blasphemy and our hatred and our rebellion. God's emotions are different than ours, but God is described in the scriptures as an emotional being. He loves, he hates, he's jealous. Now, these are words that one could argue are words of accommodation. They're words taken from human attributes and applied to God to help us to understand something about God that is complex and hard to figure out. But these are the words we have. And the idea here is we need to understand that God is not aloof. He's not a distant God. God desires a relationship with this little man. And it's a beautiful thing to come to grips with that and to hear God speak these words of grace and beauty, these refreshing words, these glorious words about the creatures that he loves. How do we respond to divine jealousy? We are humbly thankful. We are deeply encouraged. We are in awe of this wonderful God, as glorious and celestial and infinite as he is, that he takes an interest in little 
creatures down here. You and I. Be blessed by these words. Your identity is not in your superpowers. Your accomplishments. God loves you in spite of you. That is a greater blessing to hear than the message of false religion, which says the God or the gods or the divine other loves you because you were a good little boy or girl. You know, you read your holy scriptures. You prayed the way you were supposed to pray. You understood your own innate deity or godness or whatever lies and garbage the religion delivers to you. You got to switch your mindset. It's not your innate goodness that builds you up. It's the fact that you aren't good. But a great and gracious God jealously desires relationship with you. Secondly, we submit to God's benevolent rule. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. God graciously offers grace to those who have humbled themselves, have understood they are not good, They are broken and they are breakable. He offers grace in the journey of life. And it is his grace that fixes our breakability. Again, humanism and false religion might be able to temporarily fix your brokenness, correct your behavior, in other words. Force you to act differently, convince you to think differently, but you're still broken. And you're still breakable. God's grace is what fixes the second part of that equation. Your breakability. Let me ask you, do you love the world's ideas, the world's perspectives, the world's insight, the world's ideologies, the world's systems, the world's genius? Is that what you're relying upon to fix humanity? Nothing wrong with making sure our educational system is solid and improving. Nothing wrong with trying to vote in you know, the best politicians possible or pick the best schools or think through the issues or get things right. But again, folks, these don't fix human nature. They don't fix human nature. The problems will still come back. If we are in love with the world's ideas, perspectives, ideologies, the world's possessions, the Bible says God will oppose you. He will oppose you. And here's a little secret, a little sidebar, which is implied in the text as well. If you love the world, if you're fixated with the world's views and philosophies and perspectives on things, what that actually tells you about yourself is that you are under the power and the manipulation of the devil himself. There is no spiritually neutral territory that you can land on. If you oppose God, the gift of God, the message of God, the promises of God, you're not just out there in neutral territory. You have submitted yourself to the devil. And so the Bible says, resist the devil. It reminds us that we are in a spiritual battle. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Unlike the devil, who is a ruler that pretends to like you and pretends to care for you, but really wants to destroy you, God is a benevolent ruler. Do you know what a benevolent ruler is? A benevolent ruler is a ruler that is charitable. It's a ruler that loves his subjects. It's a ruler when he legislates, when he makes decisions, when he enforces the law, thinks about the good of those that are under his authority. And even when those under his authority may not immediately understand why he's doing what he is doing and may in fact on occasion accuse him of wrongdoing, a benevolent ruler will never do anything just to bring destruction to his citizens. He loves his citizens. He wants to rule them charitably and lovingly. This is God. 
This is God. And so when we obey God, we all know there's times when we don't really want to obey God. It's like, I probably should, but I don't, I don't feel like it. Like this just seems a little bit too much, God. You know, there are too many rules, too many regulations. Like I don't, I don't quite get it. But in faith, we choose to obey because we believe that God is good. By the way, that was the fundamental sin in the Garden of Eden. What the serpent essentially convinced Adam and Eve of is that God is not good. God is not benevolent. God's trying to hold out on you. God's the cosmic killjoy. And really, since then, the root of every sin is a, is a downplaying, a questioning, or a denial of the goodness of God. God says it. I know it's true, but I'm not going to obey it because I don't like it, and I don't think God has my best interest in mind. No, that, that's the devil. The devil doesn't have your best interest in mind, but God does. He's also concerned with his own glory, but that's not separate from his desire for you. Third, we're called to draw near to him and humbly submit to him in verses 8 to 10. So this is where it gets very relational. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And then here's the good news. And he will exalt you. What's the precursor to being exalted, to being elevated, to being lifted, to being restored? What's the precursor to that? Well, look at the language of the text. They're all repentance words. Draw near, cleanse, purify, mourn, weep, humble. The precursor to exaltation is not to convince yourself how awesome you are. The precursor to exaltation is not more schooling, better politics, better education, more social groups that will speak out against injustice. These things in and of themselves have their place, I get it. But they are not the ultimate fix to the infection of sin. Again, religious systems and human secularism, so false religious systems, all of them, without, with the exception of biblical Christianity, false religious systems and, and human secularism tries to fix the car just by adding new parts. But we're still a breakable machine. And it'll happen again and again and again. God doesn't replace parts fundamentally. He makes us new creatures in Christ. The precursor to which is repentance. How do I get there? I start off by mourning for my own sin. By weeping over my rebellion against God by drawing near to the Lord, by cleansing myself through prayer and repentance and confession of my own sins. And when I do that, God does a transformative work in my life and your life. We become unbreakable not because we're tough or we're spiritual, But we become unbreakable because God is unbreakable. And his strength becomes our strength. You understand this? It's like a divine transaction. His identity becomes yours. Your identity is cast aside. You repent of your sinfulness, your brokenness, your rebellion. His identity becomes yours. In our flesh, we will resist these things. But in Christ's identity becoming ours and his strength becoming ours, we receive a permanent fix and exaltation forevermore. So church, brothers and sisters, know this. Secularism is something that we've all been exposed to and will continue to be exposed to it day after day after day. It's not going away anytime soon. Secularism will offer, the world, in other words, will offer to improve broken people by 
getting them to believe that they're not actually that broken after all. Or by seeking to moralize them. Or to correct the way they think. Give them a little more education. Throw a little more money at them. Take their guns away. Make them behave. Dress them differently. Put them in school for a few more years. Elect a different politician to lead them. Secularism thinks that we can fix humanity by human effort. And the reason why they think that is that they believe that that which is true is only true because we, we can see it. We can experience it. It's, there can't possibly be a transcendent being because I can't prove his existence through my, my eyes and my, my smell and my taste and my touch and my hearing. So he can't possibly be real. Think of how arrogant that is. These little lightning rods called humans, and we think that God either exists or doesn't exist based upon my sensory capacity to prove or disprove him. That's ridiculous because God is by definition uncreated. And while his presence is reflected in creatures like me, made in his image and likeness, creatures can't prove the existence of a creator through our means, through our mechanisms, through our senses. We require the divine other, that is the eternal God, to reveal himself to us, which he has through the words of his prophets and apostles, through the Holy Spirit, and through the word of God. Secularism offers to improve broken people by denying their breakability, by telling you you're innately powerful, you're innately good, you're a hero, you're awesome, embrace your identity. It's all a lie. It's garbage with a capital G. It's garbage. We have tried it and it's failed. And it will continue to fail no matter how sophisticated we are. It will continue to fail. But through Christ, through Christ, the broken are healed by grace. And they become unbreakable because of and through the strength of God offered to them at the moment of their abject surrender and humility. This is great news. This is awesome news. This is why there is no greater blessing than seeing oneself as forgiven rather than seeing oneself as good. I'd rather be forgiven any day of the week than to buy the lie that I am innately good. So reject secularism's lies. Reject secularism's view of human nature. Preach it. Teach it. Embrace it. Because in this biblical depiction of humanity's brokenness, in God's grace, in God's jealous yearning for relationship with us, there is not only temporal, But there is lasting hope, there is lasting joy, and there is lasting meaning to the glory of God and the benefit of his people. Be blessed by these words, church.